Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. War is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded nature of moral and patriotic feeling which thinks that nothing is worth war is much worse. John Stuart Mill Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One, Episode 20.1, 1886 to 1895. Today we will be examining the diplomatic breakdown and the changing international situation that leads to World War One. I hope you had a good Christmas and Happy New Year, and that you're ready to get into World War One, because the podcast will be very busy over the next month or so. In case you were wondering, yes, the fact that this is episode 20.1 does mean that there will be a 20.2, 0.3, etc. until we reach 21. The idea is that by releasing these episodes close enough together, you won't feel too overwhelmed by the sheer quantity of it, and the story will hopefully flow. Trust me, you will need nine episodes on World War I. There is just so much to cover, first beforehand and then with the war itself and its consequences. I'll be drawing on a number of sources for each episode, including articles I have kept for years in preparation for such a time as today when I'll need them. The plan is for each episode to be about 45 minutes long, and by spreading it out like this I'll hopefully be able to avoid that disastrous two-hour episode I did on Napoleon for episode 10.75 all those months ago. I'm giving myself plenty of leeway in terms of time in case I find little anecdotes or side notes that I think will interest you. Since many of you will heard at least a part of this story before, hearing it from a different perspective, i.e. mine, is the only real selling point I have right now, so I hope you'll join me for the duration of the war. Without further ado then, I will now take you to the year 1886. The impact of the Bulgarian crisis, which lasted from 1885 to 1888, can be seen in the subsequent change in policy Europe's factions began to see. The League of the Three Emperors, Bismarck's staple three-way agreement for the past two decades, was in severe jeopardy. In the last years of his chancellery, Bismarck had had to work even harder to ensure that Russia was not significantly alienated enough by Germany to search for an ally elsewhere, such as France. Remember, France was the driving force behind all of Bismarck's policies. An alliance was made with Austria to strengthen Central Europe against France, an alliance was made with Italy to secure Germany's southern flank against France, and an alliance was made with Russia to ensure that the Tsar could not side with, and thus conduct a two-front war against, Germany with France. We've seen before the various issues which popped up in the years 1871 to 1886, and appeared to threaten an end to the Russo-German understanding, but still it endured, even while Germany's most reliable ally Austria drifted further and further away from Russia, due to both bitter rivalry in the Balkans. You're probably sick of hearing it at this stage, but the Balkans was a key issue, perhaps the key issue to understanding the shifting moods and agreements between Germany, Russia, Austria and Italy. France, however apathetic Russia felt about Germany in the 1880s, remained isolated and without any kind of ally to call her own. 
Italy, as we have already seen, was inspired by colonial snubs by France to enter into a second three-way alliance in 1882, the Triple Alliance of Germany, Austria and Italy. Bismarck's insurance policy, as I like to call it, was more of a plan B than a preferred alternative to the Three Emperors League. Bismarck thoroughly believed that Russia was the key to peace in Europe, but if Russia could not be guaranteed as an ally, then alliances with other powers were surely respectable enough as a backup plan. Bismarck recognised Italy's deficiencies, but also understood the necessity in keeping everyone away from France. Unless you find a text directly covering Bismarck, most texts are notably silent on his final years, bar exceptions like mentioning the reinsurance treaty with Russia and his dismissal by Wilhelm II. 1890 seems to be a handy date most historians like to jump off from when covering World War I, and many books will just start at this time and look at the remaining 24 years as a sort of countdown towards disaster. But the reality was, by 1886, all Bismarck had already worked for was hanging by a thread. The problem was the Balkans, namely the incompatibility of Germany's two allies, Russia and Austria, and their policies in the Balkans. Austria was trying to extend her influence over modern-day Albania, Bosnia and Montenegro by imperial means. If Austria could not hold the position Germany held, as master of all German-speaking peoples and states, then she would instead focus east. This brought Austria into conflict with Russia, but only as recently as when Slavic nationalism became an issue. As recently as 1855, before the Crimean War, Russia and Austria's alliance was the cornerstone of a stable Europe. Russia's newer direction, which favoured absorption of as many Slavic peoples and states as possible, and influence over those it did not directly absorb, such as Bulgaria which it helped create, put it at odds with Austria, especially when Russia began to protest or make claims to territory that Austria was annexing on imperial grounds in the Balkans, because Russia wanted the territory to be part of a wider Russia along Slavic nationalistic grounds. Thus, both Russia and Austria wanted the same things, land and influence, but for different reasons, and these reasons were so important to them that it took a mere generation for one of the oldest alliances in Europe to collapse and change into a bitter, potentially explosive rivalry. This explains why Bismarck had such a hard time of it trying to reconcile Austria and Russia into a three-way alliance with Germany. Of course, Bismarck's motives were altogether selfish. He wanted the alliance with both merely to isolate France, but such motives did result in a relatively peaceful Europe for the duration of Bismarck's ministry. Exactly how incompatible Russia and Austria's aims were in Europe were realised in the aftermath of the Russo-Turkish War in 1877 and in the Bulgarian Crisis of 1886. These two events really established the problems of both Russia and Austria in their clearest terms to Bismarck. While it signified to Europe's other diplomats that Russia and Austria were no longer the solid partners that they had been for so long, and that an era had indeed ended. The Bulgarian crisis was the real event that signified the end of the Three Emperors League. Bismarck knew that in order to keep Russia on side, Russia had to be appeased, but the reality was that by 1886 the Three Emperors League was unpopular with most Russian statesmen, who felt it compromised their sovereignty. The problem was the differences not just between Austria and Russia, which Bismarck continued to try and reconcile, but also, as William Carr in his book A History of Germany 1815-1990 explains, between Germany and Russia. Quote, Bismarck accused his successors of criminal stupidity for allowing the treaty to lapse and so making a Franco-Russian alliance certain. That was a pardonable exaggeration of a frustrated old man. He had in fact helped to alienate Russia from Germany. More fundamentally, the ruling elites in both empires were politically dependent on agrarian and industrial circles whose demands for protective tariffs had driven Russia and Germany apart. Even so, conservative diplomats were still influential enough in 1890 to insist on preserving a connection which kept Austria quiet and left Russia free to face Britain in Asia. When approached by Russia, Bismarck was naturally favourable to renewal. Even after Bismarck's resignation, Wilhelm II assured Russia that Germany would renew it. End quote. Of course we know that Wilhelm would not allow its renewal, and while this extract from Carr's book does paint Bismarck in a somewhat negative light, it does make an important observation, that Germany, not just Austria, was drifting apart from Russia. 
The Three Emperors League was allowed to expire in 1887 due to Russian indifference and a sense of fear of Austro-German deals, and this fear was reinforced in February 1888 when Bismarck committed himself to furthering Germany's alliance with Austria by making its supposedly secret alliance with it public. The repercussions of this act by Bismarck are touched on by Jonathan Steinberg, remember him, in his book Bismarck a Life. Quote, The Hungarian elite recognised to their relief that the treaty had an entirely defensive character, and the Russians saw to their dismay that the treaty had them as its object. On February 6th, Bismarck delivered one of his grand speeches on foreign policy in the Reichstag. The final paragraph whipped up such a frenzy in the Reichstag and led to such demonstrations on the street that Bismarck had trouble getting through the cheering crowds. End quote. And Steinberg goes on to note the speech. Quote, we Germans fear God, but otherwise nothing in the world, and that fear of God is what has led us to love peace and cultivate it. Whoever breaks the peace will soon convince himself that the pugnacious love of the fatherland, of the then weak, small and exhausted Prussia which called the entire population to the colours, has today become the common possession of the entire German nation, and that whoever attacks the German nation in any way will find it uniformly armed, and every soldier, with the firm belief in his heart, God will be with us. End quote. 1888 was a key year in the rule of Bismarck. It was a year now famous in German history, saddled with the name Year of the Three Emperors, and like its equivalents in the history of other nations, it caused immense confusion and inefficiency for all involved, especially Bismarck. With Russia already harbouring a grudge after Germany's less-than-sympathetic stance towards Russia during the Bulgarian crisis, and having seen its supposed ally Austria call the shots in the Bulgarian-Serb war, Russia's withdrawal from the Three Emperors League in 1887 was a problem Bismarck almost immediately sought to rectify with an alternative treaty, the Reinsurance Treaty, officially on June 21, 1888, but negotiated before then, as early as March 1887. During this time, Pavel Shuvalov, the Russian ambassador in Berlin, had attempted to concoct an agreement between Germany and Russia, which would hopefully negate the problems that the Three Emperors League had encountered, since Austria would no longer be a part of it. But during this meeting between Bismarck and Shuvalov, Bismarck produced the details of the dual alliance between Austria and Germany of 1879, renewed in 1884 for the duration of five years, due to expire in 1889, when it would likely be renewed again. Shuvalov was shocked at this revelation, that Germany and Austria had been in cahoots all along. But if you, like me, are wondering how exactly nobody had gotten wind of it in the last years of its existence, and due to the obviously inevitable nature of it, then let me put it like this. European dealings in the 19th century were made public only if the revealing of those dealings were beneficial to the parties involved. There was no law in international relations as to what had to be made public, no Freedom of Information Acts and no entitlements of other states to know what their neighbours were up to. It seems incredible to us that Russia did not suspect Austria and Germany of working closely together, especially since Germany and France's relationship was pretty much common knowledge. Rumours would certainly have circulated, therefore I seriously doubt Shuvalov had no idea Germany and Austria were such good mates, but what he may have been surprised at was the nature of the alliance. Just as France may have been a bit miffed if it had asked for an alliance with Austria, only to discover that an alliance between Germany and Austria existed, and was directed solely at them in Germany's case, Russia's position as the focal point of the alliance from Austria's point of view, and Germany's approval of such a position, demonstrated for all to see exactly how two-faced the entire last decade or so of Bismarck's dealings with Russia had been. Even while state visits and gestures of unity had been expressed between Russia and Germany, Germany had always been planning with Austria should Russia and Austria ever enter a war with each other. The fact that secrecy was essential was obvious. Russia would never have entered into the Three Emperors League had it known about Germany's defensive alliance with Austria, an alliance directed squarely at Russia in the event of an Austro-Russian war. Germany would declare war on Russia if Russia was the aggressor in such a war, even if the Three Emperors League had acquired ringing endorsements from every interested party. Duplicity, ladies and gentlemen, was taken by Bismarck during this time to an art-form level, and Russian statesmen greeted it with the utmost disgust. 
just at the time when the Bulgarian crisis had fractured Russia-German relations, mainly due to Germany's siding with Austria in the diplomatic aftermath of the war, and just when revelations about Austro-German dealings had exposed the transparency of the Three Emperors League for all to see, Germany went through a chaotic year of dynastic troubles. On the 9th of March, 1888, the 91-year-old German Kaiser Wilhelm I died. His replacement, the ailing Frederick III, lasted a mere three months, dying from throat cancer on June 15th that year, to be replaced by his son, the 29-year-old Kaiser Wilhelm II. The reinsurance treaty was a secret to be shared between Russian and German courts only. Austria was to hear nothing of it, although it was Austria whom Russia had designed the treaty against, just as France was Bismarck's key concern. But Wilhelm II would come to see the treaty's dissolution, an unpopular mood in Bismarck's mind, even while Bismarck himself remained sceptical of its practical use and complicated nature. Sergei Goryanov, in his article The End of the League of the Three Emperors, describes the nature of the secret agreement, and the measures Bismarck wished to take in order to rectify its apparent deficiencies. Quote, By the terms of the first article of the Convention of June 6, 1887, Germany, after having protected herself by the Austrian Treaty of 1879 against attack on the part of Russia, protected herself by a fresh agreement with Russia against attack on the side of France. This agreement is known by the name of the Reinsurance Treaty. Yet these diplomatic measures did not satisfy the Chancellor's prudence. He did not cease to insist on the necessity of increasing the forces of Germany and perfecting her armament. The numbers of forces under arms in the time of peace then amounted to 700,000 men. End quote. Then came the internationally publicised status of the Austro-German Dual Alliance on February 3rd, 1888, followed by Bismarck's defiant speech on February 6th, which, as we have seen, seemed to suggest the necessity of Germany to be so powerful that a war on two fronts against Russia and France would not harm it, but that because of that superior power, such a war would never take place. Then came the crisis within Germany for the remainder of that year, with Wilhelm II emerging emperor of the strongest state in Western Europe. This meant that, by the end of 1888, Bismarck was surely nearing the end of his career. He had always tried to get the young Wilhelm II on side before his ascension, but had thereafter concluded that Wilhelm's immaturity, his lack of tact, and unrealistic view of European power politics, and Germany's future, made interactions with him frustrating. Bismarck and Wilhelm II constantly disagreed with each other, and for Bismarck, at 75 years old and as a centrepiece of Germany for the past three decades, such a working environment was not only insufferable, it was disrespectful. But Kaiser Wilhelm II was not like his grandfather Wilhelm I, and while he shared his father, Frederick III's tendency, to disagree with Bismarck on social and domestic issues, he shared none of either's pragmatism or ability. This may seem an unfair and cliched dismissal of the young Kaiser, but sometimes cliches exist for a reason, and this was one of those times. Instead of seeing the need for a Russo-German agreement, however shaky or vague Bismarck had left it, Wilhelm II instead began to become swayed by individuals in the German court who inflated Germany's power to ridiculous levels, and who argued that a two-front war with France and Russia was not only winnable, it was preferable, so long as Britain did not intervene. Britain was another area which Wilhelm disagreed on with Bismarck. As a grandchild of the British Queen Victoria through Vicky's daughter and wife of Frederick III, Wilhelm II was in almost constant awe of Britain, its empire and its navy for the early years of his rule. Because of his close relations to the monarchy, it was not unreasonable to suspect that by this fact alone an Anglo-German agreement would come to fruition, but such an agreement remained almost constantly out of Germany's reach, since it became obvious after 1890 that the only man capable of establishing such an alliance, Bismarck, was gone from his position for good. The last two years of Bismarck's chancellery were miserable for the old man, who could not adjust his famous temper or expectations he had exercised with Wilhelm II's grandfather. Because of Bismarck's old-fashioned views, in the eyes of Wilhelm II at least, and because of Bismarck's refusal to suffer fools, the relationship between monarch and statesman deteriorated further over the months. However, it wasn't in foreign policy that the relationship between both broke down to its worst extent, but in domestic policy. The 1880s were a turbulent time for the European status quo. 
Thanks to the emergence of the middle class, the decline of the conservative parties in practically all European states paid the way for movements which represented the ideas of the day more effectively. Almost all of these movements, normally born out of industrial workers demanding better treatment and further inspired by the ideas of Karl Marx, threatened to destabilise German society, at least in Bismarck's eyes, by removing or requesting concessions from the upper noble class. Russia would endure similar problems later on, which would explode in numerous riots and brutally repressed demonstrations in 1905 that eventually contributed to the downfall of the Russian monarchy. Germany's problems in 1888 and 1889 centred on dissatisfied miners, who demanded higher pay and better working conditions, and endeavoured to go on strike until their needs were met. Bismarck was not concerned about what the miners decided to do, he was far more worried about the way in which Wilhelm II handled the situation, i.e. by promising them concessions and a forum to air their grievances without consulting him. Wilhelm II, as the absolute dictator of Germany, was expected by Bismarck to act as his predecessors had done and consult Bismarck before making any major decisions, be they foreign or domestic. Bismarck had grown accustomed to his position as Germany's de facto leader, hiding behind royal approval and craftily maintaining a political monopoly due to his irreplaceable status. But Wilhelm II did not see what his predecessors saw in Bismarck's ability, and he did not wish to act as his predecessors had acted, he wanted to rule like an absolute monarch, and conducted himself thusly. Bismarck's objections to Wilhelm's shift in style from that of his father and grandfather was further evidence that the old man needed to go, and that somebody more agreeable to Wilhelm II, and someone more in tune with the times, should be brought in to replace him. For Bismarck, having sat at Germany's head for more than 30 years, having directed its policy first as Prussia in the 1860s, then as Germany in the 1870s, even a suggestion of Wilhelm's apparent desire to replace him was enough to provoke emotional outbursts from him, criticising Wilhelm's youth and naivety, while also emphasising Germany's need for the Iron Chancellor at its head. Nobody had even come close to the power Bismarck exercised in the past 30 years. Not even Wilhelm I had had as active a role in the day-to-day maintenance of the state as Bismarck had. Simply put, Germany without Bismarck did not seem like Germany. Surely the whole thing would fall apart if the old man were to go. His fragile set of alliances, many of which overlapped and conflicted with each other so frequently that only Bismarck could fully understand or communicate them to others, would surely disintegrate. The political juggling act between liberals, Catholic centrists and the illegal but still popular social democrats could be expected to come crashing down also, leading to a less than secure ruling body. Who could possibly replace him? All these rhetorical questions were answered by Wilhelm II by pointing to the changing situation both at home and abroad. Bismarck continued to challenge the supremacy of the monarchy, he continued to trumpet a level of political intolerance that threatened to unravel German society, he consistently failed to recognise the uselessness of an alliance with Russia, and seemed determined at every opportunity to emphasise Germany's dependence on her despite the weakness in which it portrayed German sovereignty. Wilhelm II believed all of this, and with further prodding from his closest advisers, he also believed that Bismarck had to go to facilitate the new direction Germany needed to go in for the sake of its prestige and international power, as well as its political stability at home. But the divorce of Bismarck from the world stage would be an ugly one. Wilhelm II would make sure of that. Germany's international situation was to change dramatically on the dismissal of Bismarck. However confident Wilhelm was of his own supremacy, he simply could not maintain what Bismarck had set in place, often because he wanted so badly to dismantle it. Wilhelm's closest advisers just so happened to be Bismarck's worst enemies, and such enemies contributed to Bismarck's downfall. As Jonathan Steinberg notes, quote, The old servant, no matter how great and how brilliant, had become in reality what he had always played on stage, a servant who could be dismissed at will by his sovereign. He had defended that royal prerogative because it had always allowed him to carry out his immense will. Now the absolute prerogative of the emperor became what it had always been, the prerogative of the emperor. Having crushed his parliamentary opponents, flattened and abused his ministers, and refused to allow himself to be bound by any loyalty, Bismarck had no ally left when he needed it. It was neither his cabinet nor his parliamentary majority. He had made sure that it remained the sovereigns, and so it was that he fell because of a system he had preserved and bequeathed 
to the young and unstable emperor. End quote. And just like that, Otto von Bismarck's career was over. A combination of relentless and vengeful enemies and an ignorant, immature and badly influenced emperor had combined to finally remove the by now friendless Bismarck from power. And with his removal came the realisation that Germany's international position and direction had changed. Leo von Caprivi, Bismarck's replacement as Chancellor, had little foreign affairs experience, and thus he depended on Friedrich von Holstein, a student of Bismarckian international ideas turned enemy of the former Chancellor, but who now became indispensable. Caprivi would only last four years, but long enough. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Enough ...to dramatically change German international direction. While his colleagues, such as the aforementioned Holstein, would try to emulate Bismarck, but lacked the faculties of a long-sighted diplomat in foreign affairs. The deficiencies of these statesmen, coupled with the indecisiveness of their emperor, were in turn combined with the ideas of another important German statesman, Admiral von Tirpitz, to dramatically change Germany's foreign policy and launch it along the direction of the new course. Wilhelm II genuinely believed that an alliance or formal agreement with Russia would not be necessary to secure their favour. Russia, Wilhelm believed, had many enemies and no friends in Europe aside from Germany, and the relationship between the royal families within the two states was thought to be close enough, the Kaiser and the Tsar were both cousins, to surely prevent either becoming enemies. But Wilhelm's lack of enthusiasm in the face of aggravated Russian calls for a clear-cut answer, when time came to renew the reinsurance treaty in 1890, sent as clear a message to the Russian foreign office as any. William Carr explains the dilemma in German relations that this attitude by Wilhelm caused. Quote, Although Wilhelm II was determined to be his own man in foreign affairs, his anti-Russian prejudice and Anglophile sympathies did not amount to a coherent policy. Nor was there any outstanding personality among his own advisers strong enough to assume complete control of foreign policy. Herbert Bismarck, who knew about his father's complex diplomacy, refused to serve as Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, and Chancellor Caprivi and Secretary of State Marshall were complete novices in the field. End quote. However, it was not just Wilhelm II who believed that the reinsurance treaty was no longer compatible with German interests. Other diplomats and colleagues in the German Foreign Office were, as Carr explains, quote, unanimous in the view that the reinsurance treaty was basically incompatible with Germany's other obligations. They feared that if the terms were leaked out, then Austria, Italy and Britain would be estranged from Germany. Professional diplomats agreed with this assessment. Caprivi too doubted the viability of a renewed treaty in view of the strength of anti-German sentiment in Russia, so he finally advised Wilhelm II against renewal, unaware that his sovereign had already encouraged the Russians to expect a favourable outcome to the negotiations. Wilhelm agreed at once, remarking with light-hearted abandon, then it isn't possible, much as I regret it, and the treaty was thus allowed to lapse. 
end quote. There was by no means an Anglo-French agreement at this stage, and in fact Britain looked at France during this time as its second most dangerous enemy right behind Russia. You would have been laughed out of the building had you suggested that Britain's two allies in the coming war, which was expected at some point, were to be France, its main rival in Africa, and Russia, its resolute enemy throughout the 19th century. Certainly, the Kaiser did not believe in the viability of an Anglo-French alliance, but he also failed to understand how the so-called new course in international relations would affect Russia. Russian statesmen do not forget easily. And certainly, there was the real sense during this time that Russian interests could be better served not with Germany, but with France. The anti-German feelings had not subsided with Bismarck's dismissal. In fact, they had only increased as the aims of the German government became harder for Russia to ascertain and as the Austro-German agreements became more and more intimidating. There was the belief that more security lay with the French alliance because of what it would mean for Germany. The two-front war is a scenario no one wants to prepare for, and this was the exact situation Bismarck had jumped through so many hoops to avoid. If Russia was pushed into the arms of France, then German security would be severely undermined. Britain would then be essential for German security and for keeping the Franco-Russian alliance at bay. But this was pure speculation in the early 1890s, for the moment nothing concrete between Russia and France had materialised, and Britain remained indecisive about continental commitments. So what was the key issue that pushed Russia, now in a sense of international limbo after finally being released from any formal agreement with Germany, into the arms of a French agreement? William Carr gives his two cents. Quote, Germany assured Russia that she still desired friendly relations, but Caprivi's consistent refusal to entertain further written agreements with Russia aroused misgivings in St. Petersburg. Germany did not think the course had altered, but Russia did. She was annoyed by the growing intimacy between Russia and Austria, and she was positively alarmed by the attempts of Wilhelm II to ingratiate himself with Britain, Russia's greatest enemy. Wilhelm paid frequent visits to his grandmother Queen Victoria, the British government welcomed the friendship of Germany and made the young emperor an honorary admiral of the fleet. In 1890, Britain and Germany signed a colonial agreement, the Anglo-German Convention, which restored Heligoland to Germany in return for a limitation of German claims in East Africa and a recognition of the British protectorate of Zanzibar. This was followed in 1891 by rumours that Britain had joined the Triple Alliance. This was the last straw for Russia. Fear of isolation drove her into the arms of France. In August 1891, France and Russia negotiated an Entente, which was followed by a military convention in 1892 and a full-blown alliance in 1894. End quote. It had taken barely a year since Bismarck's dismissal in mid-1890 for Bismarck's central strategy to disappear. But was the policy of Bismarck with respect to Russia doomed to fail anyway? Perhaps, since it seemed to take little prodding for the once Prussian, and then German ally, to become Germany's most dangerous enemy. The point is, though, Bismarck would never have allowed Russia to move into the French, and thus anti-German, camp. This was demonstrated in his acquiring of the reinsurance treaty. However flimsy, vague, or shady the agreements were, Bismarck would have fought tooth and nail before allowing Russia to side with France whereas Wilhelm allowed it, in Bismarck's eyes at least, with an infuriating sense of apathy and a critical failure to understand how power politics worked. While Bismarck was banging his head against a wall in his sullen form of retirement, Wilhelm was undoing all that Bismarck had built during his 30 years in office, and it only took one year. Otto von Bismarck would live long enough to see the Franco-Russian agreement solidify and form the basis of the two armed camps that would lead the world into war in the next century and he went to his grave, convinced that it was Wilhelm II, the ungrateful, naive and ignorant boy emperor, who would set Germany on a course from which it could not return, and towards a war which it could not win. He died on July 30th, 1898. Britain had no intention of joining the Triple Alliance. She did not wish to entangle herself in the continental rivalry between Germany and France, and she certainly did not want to invest herself in the Balkans something that an alliance with Austria-Hungary would surely entail. Britain was for the moment satisfied with friendly relations with Germany by virtue of its close family ties, and maintained a good relationship that would surely have lasted well into the 20th century had certain people not been in certain places at certain times. 
The Franco-Russian Entente was signed by both parties and brought into international law on January 4, 1894. The significance of the alliance was not immediately felt by those members of the Triple Alliance, least of all Germany. Wilhelm II still believed that, while tying his country to Russia was a bad idea, Russian friendship was not out of reach. As a sign of how quickly things can change, a sudden sourness in Anglo-German relations over African colonial issues necessitated some attempts by German diplomats to try and repair the damage in the relationship, intentional or otherwise, caused by allowing Russia to treat with France. A commercial treaty in March 1894 seemed to alleviate some of the pressure, at the very least it proved Russia and Germany were not yet enemies. The new Chancellor, Prince Clodwig Hohenlohe, was related to the Russian aristocracy by marriage, and thus made it his goal during his time in office, 1894-1900, to pape over the cracks in the Russo-German friendship. The agreement instilled a certain level of Russian confidence in Germany, as German industrialists in the East began to provide a healthier market for Russian goods, while also convincing those East Germans of the necessity of a Russo-German friendship. These industrialists then formed numerous lobby groups who advocated a pro-Russian policy, in contrast to the landowner lobbyists who advocated restrictions on tariff reductions and a protectionist policy with respect to Russia. Wilhelm listened to the industrialists in this case, but one of his biggest problems was that he was so inconsistent, and it didn't help that his Chancellor and Foreign Ministry were full of kiss-ups and incompetent statesmen who could offer Wilhelm no clear direction or plan for the future. It was into this power vacuum and need for a clear-cut policy that a certain admiral began to gain influence. I'll give you a hint. He gives his name to the other famous World War II battleship. In my view, it was this gaping hole in German foreign policy direction, combined with Wilhelm II's whole load of appreciation for the British Navy and eventual desire to replicate it, that enabled Admiral Alfred von Tirpitz to acquire levels of power and influence not seen in Germany since Bismarck. In terms of his impact on German foreign policy, nobody since Bismarck even came close, because once Tirpitz was in the position of captain in 1891, he moved to Berlin to advise a small team there on how to best develop Germany's naval capabilities. He came into conflict almost immediately with Naval State Secretary Friedrich von Hallmann. Hallmann was charged with supplying ships as long as the funds were there to do so, but Hallmann's realism was lost on Tirpitz, who imagined giant fleets of battleships eight vessels strong, and the development of further cruiser units, also eight vessels strong. Hallmann turned Tirpitz away repeatedly, explaining that the cost was too high and the ships unnecessary, but Tirpitz had one key supporter, the Kaiser was on his side. It won't be until the next episode that you really see just how influential Tirpitz was to the future of Germany, and how the ideas which inspired him to build a fleet to rival Britain's contributed to the circular logic of German attempts to try and intimidate Britain into an alliance in the late 1890s and early 1900s. But for now, let's leave him at his highest position, when in 1892 he was made Chief of the Naval Staff and then a Rear Admiral in 1895. While Tirpitz prepared the plans that would eventually pull Britain and Germany so firmly apart, another country across the world was establishing itself. You may vaguely remember the Sino-Japanese War in 1894, when I made a passing reference to it in episode 3 on the Russo-Japanese War of 1904. Japan's contribution to World War I is often never considered by most historians, who tend to look at Europe before, during and after World War I, and leave Asia out altogether, except for a few passing references whenever they feel necessary. As we'll see in the next episode though, Japan's impact was an immense one in the course of history, and just like Tirpitz in Germany, its foundation was being set here. So let's leave Japan and von Tirpitz here, in their early stages, and take a brief but hopefully worthwhile tour of the rest of the world, to explain who was doing what and where, and who was being mean to who and why. The United States of America was, in 1895, about to enter a defining period in its history. Poised to enter the world stage, the years of industrialism and massive population growth had transformed the country utterly. It was not recognised yet as a power in the same league as Britain or Germany, but there was certainly the idea there among European statesmen that America was the untested power soon to explode onto the world stage. Only Britain had a more extensive trade network than her and American statesmen were finished looking to local issues. 
Manifest Destiny had granted America the entirety of the continent, except Canada of course, and Americans now looked abroad, publicly for reasons of security, but privately for reasons of prestige. Though no American president would admit it, the coming foreign policy of America, with its war against Spain and the subsequent occupation of Cuba and guerrilla war in the Philippines, suggested that America was much the same as its former colonial master and the imperialist European powers it claimed to abhor. Abhor or not, it was these policies that brought America into a collision course with Spain and in the process, onto the world stage and into the Council of Powers. Japan was similar to America in this respect. Opened by American businessmen eager to tap its resources in 1854, Japan had undergone a massive program of industrialism and reform in just three decades to become a major power in its own right. By 1895, it had emerged victorious in its war against China, and had been halted from achieving total victory only due to the cautious advice of concerned European parties. The involvement of Europe in Japanese affairs was the beginning of a trend that would reach its logical conclusion, war, a decade later, but for now, Japanese statesmen could be confident that they were safe from the same kind of treatment that China or the rest of Asia was being subjected to. As a recognised anomaly of the colonial expansion of the European powers, Japan's insistence on modernization likely saved it from the fate of its Chinese neighbours, and would ensure its contribution to world affairs, as we'll see in the next episode, was on a scale never before imagined. Italy was perhaps the power with the least to gain from its association with Germany and Austria in the Triple Alliance. Now seeing the level to which the international situation had changed, Italy approached Britain repeatedly in order to seek assurances that Britain would remain neutral in the event of a Franco-Italian war, and numerous Mediterranean agreements in 1887 were signed between Britain and Italy as a result. Colonial differences still stung Italian pride so long as France held Tunisia, and the late 1880s had seen a disastrous rearmament program cripple the Italian economy. In a desperate attempt to restore national pride and encourage Italian feelings of destiny, Italian Prime Minister Francesco Crispi would refocus his attention on Africa to the detriment of any Italian ambitions in the region. 1895 was the year Italians could still believe in the destiny that was theirs for the taking, but in a year's time, that Italian dream would go up in smoke, and Italy would remain a reluctant, though arguably essential cog, in the wheel of the Triple Alliance. France was in 1895 riding high, or at least a lot higher than it had been a decade before. The end of its isolation had come at just the right time, and Bismarck's fall had enabled Franco-German relations to cool, so long as the French public remained in awe of the German nightmare. The alliance with Russia was essential to restoring French national confidence, and Russia was only too eager to cooperate even closer with France. Military cooperation between the two was necessitated by the precarious position of the other, and they knew it. That explains why Russia and France pooled their resources and tried to cover old wounds so quickly. For France, an ally on the other side of Germany meant a whole new level of security and an end to the fear of a German war of annihilation against her. Alliances with other European powers remained out of the question for France. Britain was still in the process of removing herself from her European isolation, all the while contending with France in Africa, while France would never be seen as a true friend of Britain so long as France was the ally of Britain's worst enemy, Russia. Russia was a country whose policy had changed in the space of a decade so drastically that it was practically unrecognisable. Germany was now the enemy, however improved the relations between the two had become in 1894 and 95, and France was now her greatest friend. Britain was still perhaps her greatest enemy, due to both conflicting policies in Asia and the Middle East, while the protection of the Dardanelles Straits grew in their importance because of the increased Franco-Russian sea traffic through the lanes, lanes which Russia knew it could only own if it was victorious in a war with Britain. Tsar Nicholas II of Russia was the cousin of Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany and the future King George V of Britain, whose rule began in 1910, and thus it's often easy to see the unfolding drama as a family affair played out on the world stage. Would you declare war on your cousin? Regardless of their family ties, Britain and Russia's relationship had never been repaired during the 19th century, to the extent that the Franco-Russian Entente was viewed as a step against Britain in London. Russian statesmen were also coming to the conclusion that perhaps Britain was not the only enemy she would have to contend with, and that combined, 
their rivals in Germany, their enemy in Austria, and their archenemy in Britain could play havoc for Russian designs on the world. Thus the coming war with Japan, while it spelled disaster for so many reasons for Russia, would also make an Anglo-Russian understanding that much easier, though the two remained enemies of each other for the rest of the century. Austria was doing its best with what it had at its disposal in the late 19th century. A series of wars had revealed just how invested Austria was in the Balkans, and a further series of wars in the Balkans during the years 1911 to 1913 would threaten to drag the rest of the world in, but Austria remained resolutely committed to its Balkan policies, while also tying itself closer to Germany and its Triple Alliance. Italy was far harder to gauge in its attitude towards the Habsburg state, but so long as Italy remained a member of the Triple Alliance, Austria's southern flank remained secure. Habsburg Austria was a shell of the former Austria that had refused to cease opposing Napoleonic France, or who had placed itself atop the European food chain in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, but it was still a critical European power due to its geographical position alone. Germany had got there and made it an ally before anyone else, and although Austria-Hungary operated largely in the shadow of this Germany, Germany still depended on it utterly, especially once Russia had signed its treaty with France. The Triple Alliance looked solid on paper, and positively impenetrable on any European map, but the reality was far different as we know. When the time comes for war, Italy will prove its reluctance, and the Austro-German alliance will have to prove its strength. Germany, while confident of its position among the Conservative powers in Europe in 1895, was heading in a direction that its former Chancellor had always endeavoured to avoid. Russia was for Germany on a different side of the fence in 1895 than it had been in 1885, and such a change was a good demonstration of just how quickly the European balance can shift. While friendly relations were encouraged with Russia, Wilhelm was far more interested in Britain and what it could contribute to German security, and this change had closed a door on Germany's old policy to the benefit of France, who took merely a year to sense which way the wind was blowing and approach the desperate Russia with an alliance. France was now a threat to Germany that she could not scrub out so easily, lest she risk a two-front war for which she was not prepared. German statesmen did not wallow in the significance of this shift in foreign policy, rather they adapted to prepare for such a conflict, as we shall see in future episodes. For the moment, German security depended in large part on British friendship, which admittedly began to wane in the late 1890s, but which was essential to ensuring that Britain did not tip the balance in France's favour. It was doubtful in Berlin that Britain would reconcile itself with Russia, and thus this enabled German statesmen to act with more freedom than they perhaps really had. This lack of preparedness for unforeseen events would mean that Germany was caught disastrously off guard when the eventual Triple Entente was signed between Russia, Britain and France. The German problem was that they now lacked a strong politician at their head. Even though they continued to act as though they knew what they were doing, German policy was flying by the seat of its pants, with the alliance with Austria and need for British cooperation remaining the only certainty. Britain's foreign policy was centred on Russia, not Germany, for the latter half of the 19th century. It was in fact believed by Russia that Britain was in the process of formalising an alliance with Germany in the 1890s, even while Britain had little inclination to do so. Queen Victoria's Britain was the powerhouse of the world at this stage. The largest empire, covering one-sixth of the globe, the largest navy, the richest, most influential, the most formidable enemy, and a keenly independent power, Britain had managed to avoid the latest craze of frantic alliance brokering in the late 19th century, and thus it had the room to manoeuvre that pretty much all European states at this stage lacked. Friendly relations with Germany gave credit to the idea that a future alliance was possible. Surely the royal families, the trade deals, Germany was Britain's best customer and vice versa, Germany would bring the army and Britain would bring the navy, all suggested to German and often British officials that such an alliance was in the works and would be created in the not-too-distant future. Britain had more quarrels with France than Germany at this stage. In Egypt, the Middle East, the rest of Africa and the Franco-Russian alliance, British and French statesmen chafed. James Joel, in his book Origins of the First World War, explains the mindset of Germany with respect to Britain, as well as how the relationship would change. Quote, 
Even with the French alliance, the Russians would not be in a position to withstand the combined efforts of Germany, Austria and Britain along her eastern and southern frontiers. This arrangement would be so advantageous to the British, who must recognise the inevitability of an Anglo-Russian war over the future of Asia, that they should be prepared to make concessions to the Germans outside of Europe. Such cooperation would symbolise the success of the new course. The British, however, refused throughout the 1890s to be drawn into the alliance, and the Germans gradually became convinced that the British would be persuaded to join only if the consequences of remaining aloof became too dangerous. Herein lies the diplomatic origins of the Risk fleet. Germany would build a naval force strong enough to ensure that Britain would not dare to run the risk of war with her. This would draw Britain into the alliance and encourage friendly behaviour in Asia and Africa, where territorial concessions would provide the German government with examples of the success of its foreign policy. End quote. The coming years would shatter this illusion, and many others, due to the constantly changing nature of a Europe with so many problems and egos stuffed into such a closed space and with such large armies, populations and ambitions. This episode has covered the years 1886 to 1895, hopefully satisfactorily enough for you that you can confidently tackle the next episode on world diplomacy, which will cover the years 1896 to 1905. There won't be a month before that one is out, I can assure you of that. For the next few weeks I'll be in overdrive mode, so I'll see you again soon for episode 20.2. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 